the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. Praise to the God who reigns above. God had given the children of Israel victory over the walled city of Jericho. Finally in the land, the Israelites were moving into all that God had promised them. Their next obstacle was the city of Ai. Will God give them the victory against the new city? We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 6 ends pretty awesome. You know, the walls of Jericho have come down. Israel defeats the city through God's supernatural involvement. And it says in verse 27 of chapter 6, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Things are good, right? Hebrews 11.30 tells us that, well, mentions this as the one thing that Israel trusted God completely with, the whole Jericho experience. It is so sad that chapter 7 begins with the words, but... Because up to this point in Joshua, we've looked at many different keys to living a victorious Christian life. We talked about getting into the fight, about being strengthened by God, being courageous, letting him take the lead. We've we've talked about lots of different keys to living in that victory that Christ purchased for us on the cross. But tonight, there'll be a few of these in Joshua, but tonight we're going to look at one of the things that will keep us from living that victorious life, and it's secret sin. So chapter 7, we begin in verse 1. It says, but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the cursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, and on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and do not make all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men. For they chased them from before the gate even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, they put dust upon their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side, Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall environ us around, and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do unto your great name? The Lord said unto Joshua, Get you up. Why do you lie thou here upon your face? We'll stop there for now. It's an interesting event. No one knows what's going on here except two people, the Lord and Achan. Everyone else is kind of in the dark. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding going on in what's going on here. A lot of times people will grab a verse 
in a section like this and they will throw it out there and go, see, the Bible says this. You have to realize something. Not everybody that's talking in the Bible knows what they're talking about. Just because it's under inspiration, the sense that it really happened, doesn't mean they're correct. I can tell you the Bible says that there is no God. It also says right before it, the fool has said in his heart. So you understand you need to get context. You need to understand what's going on. Otherwise, you know, things don't make sense. There's a lot of misunderstanding going on here. Now, it starts off with the fact. It says here that the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. Basically, this means someone took plunder from Jericho. The phrase there to commit a trespass means they broke a trust. They were unfaithful to a commitment. And the commitment was is that God had said that everything in Jericho was under the ban. That's what the phrase accursed thing means. It was devoted to the Lord. No one else could touch it but the Lord. If you remember, Joshua reminded all of the people right after the priest blew the trumpets. Remember he said, all right, we're going to shout in a second, but remember, when those walls come crashing down, you get right into the city, you defeat the enemy, and you don't touch any of the plunder. The city is to be burned to the ground, and anything of value belongs to the Lord and will be donated to him. We're in Joshua now, but before Joshua came the book of Deuteronomy, right? And Moses spent all of Deuteronomy urging Israel to love God supremely, right? I mean, it's the whole theme. It's like a broken record. You just over and over again. He says, you got to love the Lord with everything in you. You need to obey him. You need to follow him. Moses had promised them that if they would keep God's commands, God would bless everything they did. And Israel experienced that as the walls came tumbling down in a supernatural miracle. And God won Jericho for them. So everything's good up to that point. What in the world happened when they actually took the city? Well, the end of verse 1 tells us that Achan, and then it gives us his lineage, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, he took of the accursed, he took of the things that were under the ban, things that were devoted to the Lord. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. I want to pause for a second and just imagine if you're Achan. Imagine if you're Achan. You, you've just marched around Jericho for seven days. You have kept quiet the entire time despite the risk you face. And then when the trumpets blow, you hear Joshua's instructions, and then you give a mighty shout. And after it happens, you visibly see the walls come crumbling down. And not only that, but because you're in the tribe of Judah, you are in the front line. You are the first of the Israeli soldiers that are into the breach of that wall to take the city. You are one of the first individuals to see the city won and secured. You've just seen an amazing, logic-defying miracle. You are on the front lines of all that God has done. What in the world is going through your mind when you see something that no one's looking at in God's loot pile? What in the world would have to go through your mind? Everything's being kind of dumped into this pile that's going to be dedicated and donated to the Lord that makes you think, nobody's looking. I'm going to take this, 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 and this. It begs the question, who am I when no one's looking, right? You know, am I an adulterer or a thief or am I faithful to the Lord? Someone has said that we don't know who we really are until no one's looking. I don't know if that's entirely accurate. That's like deciding to take a picture of someone at their very worst moment and saying that's who they are. So I don't know if that's entirely accurate. I think when we are alone, we are most vulnerable because we don't have a lot of the security measures that we keep around us. One of the things that we commonly tell people who come to the church for help, we say, listen, we're not telling you you have to come to our church, but you need to get plugged into a church. You need support systems around you because you're in this mess partially, not just because you fell on hard times or difficult things happen, but you don't have any support systems around you to kind of carry you through this difficult time. When Bev hurt her back and my foot was already broken a couple weeks ago, it, we were like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, 
How are we going to get the kids to school? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? We had so many people rally around us that got us through that really rough patch of two or three days, you know, where she couldn't walk. I'm obviously not able to function in certain capacities. It was awesome. And you've, if you've gone through a difficult time here, you've probably experienced that as well, where people came around you and rallied around you and kind of put their arms underneath you and helped you get through those difficult times. I think God tells us to have those security systems in place, those support systems in place because so we don't get in trouble. But there is a sense where I think we learn our true weaknesses, though, when we're alone. And we oftentimes also will learn how serious we are about making sure we don't expose our weaknesses. And so Achan clearly had a problem here. And so when no one was looking, he took something. I think this teaches us a few important lessons. I think it first teaches us that no amount of supernatural experiences will overcome a flaw in character. No amount of supernatural experiences will overcome a flaw in character. In all the years of my walking with the Lord through times of temptation, in that moment of temptation, I didn't go, yeah, but you remember how God took care of our roof? Or yeah, but you remember how God did this? I'm not thinking about that in that moment. The only thing that has kept me pure and, and obedient to the Lord in that moment has been his word. It's been the reminder of his commands, the reminder of his love for me, the reminder of what he did for me on the cross, the promises in his word, the warnings in his word. That's the only thing that's kept me doing the right thing in those moments of temptation. It doesn't tell us if Achan felt spiritual when he shouted or the walls came down, but we do know that what he saw God do just moments earlier didn't keep him from breaking faith with God here. So this is why we cannot seek after signs and wonders. Desiring spiritual gifts is biblical, but so is the pursuit of love and holiness. That's also biblical. And that only comes from knowing and living out God's word. The second thing this thing teaches us is that Achan was clearly not ready for the temptation that he faced in Jericho because it wasn't lack of knowledge. He knew it was wrong. We'll see that in a moment. It wasn't lack of knowledge. Joshua had made a warning so clear beforehand. But see, I found that far too often we fail in the moment of temptation, not because we don't know what to do, but because we're not prepared to face the decision. My very first pastor, I should say my first pastor that I actually got to know, he would say something. He would say, you need to make a quality decision, Will. And then he would explain. He would say, a quality decision is a decision that negates the need to make any future decisions on that topic. That stuck with me. If you decide beforehand, when I get in this moment, this is my choice, then you don't have to make a choice in that moment. You say, I've already made the decision about what I'm going to do here. And I can't tell you how many times when the enemies come to me with temptation, I've said, I don't need to make a choice right now. I made one already when I surrendered that area of my life to the Lord. Staying close to the Lord in times of peace is the key to obeying the Lord in the heat of battle. That's the key. Galatians 5.16 tells us that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. It doesn't mean in that moment. It means if we walk, and you guys have probably heard Pastor Gibbs say this, me say this, other Bible teachers say this, but in the Bible, when it talks about our walk, it's talking about our way of life. If we conduct our, our lives, our regular everyday lives is living in the Spirit, right? Then we won't fulfill the desires of our flesh. It won't come to that completion in that battle that we face. We can only walk in the Spirit when the flesh is tempted if we're allowing the Spirit to lead our lives in the normal moments. Now, as a result of Achan's failure, Joshua's warning of 6.18 comes true. In 6.18, he says, and you, this is what he told them right after the trumpets blew, and you in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, from the thing devoted to the Lord, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take of that thing and, and you make the camp of Israel a curse and you trouble it. Well, that's exactly what happened here. For it says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. They became 
the accursed thing. God's displeasure burned hot against Israel, and they lost his favor. So that leads into this whole debacle here in Ai. It says in verse 2, And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. So the men went up and viewed Ai. Now, Ai is a small town just under 15 miles west of Jericho. It was important because it guarded the approach to the strategic central crossroads to the hill country there in the middle of Israel. If you took Ai, everything else opened up. So it's the clear next target for Israel. Joshua sends the spies to covertly go up and to view the city, see what the situation is. And what do they find? It says, they returned to Joshua and said unto him, let not all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and smite Ai. Don't make all the people go labor thither, for they are but, the people of Ai are but a few. They basically have two parts of their report. They come back with a battle recommendation and an assessment of the city. We'll look at their assessment first. It mentions here that they are few. I don't know about you, but that's not exactly military intel to me. I'm not a military man, so I don't have expert opinion on gaining military intel, but it does seem pretty weak to me. It's interesting when archaeologists, just recently, AI was kind of an enigma to Bible scholars because nobody could find it. The only place they found that they thought was AI, it didn't fit anywhere near the time of the Exodus. And then about 1990. Seven, they found this place that perfectly fit AI. But what they discovered when they, they dug it up was that AI, even though it only covered two acres, it had a 13-foot thick wall all around it. I mean, that's, that's intense. You're not battering that thing down. I mean, you're going to have to find a weak point or go over that thing. And I'm not exactly sure you need a whole lot of men to defend a wall that thick against two to 3,000 soldiers. So it makes their battle recommendation a little bit absurd to me. The reason is, is because they say we don't want to make the rest of the army labor, it says. The word labor means to tire out or to wear out. In other words, Joshua, bigger battles await us after AI. Let's conserve our main army strength. Just send a small task force up to deal with AI. And again, while I'm not a military man, I am a sports guy. And this sounds like the classic case of looking ahead to a stronger opponent and thus not preparing for your immediate opponent. The big difference in war, though, is it costs lives. And so in verses 4 and 5, we see where things went wrong. So there went up thither, verse 4, of the people, about 3,000 men, but it says they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them 36 men, killed, killed, 36 men. These are probably the first casualties that Israel's experienced in war. 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate, the gate house, even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So Israel's kind of attack plan was to hit the gate house. That's the only weak point. It's the, the place where people would go in and out of the city. And so it's not going to be 13 feet thick. It's going to be guarded in some other way or fashion. But so they knew they couldn't go over the wall within just a small amount of numbers, so they attacked the gatehouse, but it failed. And when they turned to run, the men of Ai chased them into Shebarim as a rock quarry nearby. So they chased them down into a rock quarry whose only exit, it says, was the going down, which means a slope. So to get out of the rock quarry and get away from these soldiers, they had to go into the low ground where these soldiers could pick them off with either spears or arrows from the, from the high ground. And as a result, they were able to pick off around 40 men. And so when news comes back, not just of the loss, but that 40 men around that have died, it devastates the nation. It says that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now that word melted, that's the same exact word that was used to describe what the Canaanites were experiencing when the Jordan River was parted and Israel was able to cross over on dry land. It says their hearts melted. It means to be in a state of irresistible discouragement 
or anxiety. It's interesting when Joshua told them, if you take of the accursed thing, you yourselves will become accursed. You'll become just like the Canaanites. And that's exactly what happens here. How did Israel make such a tactical blunder? How did they fall to arrogance? I've seen many and heard many teachers fault Joshua for not seeking God. He just went and did this, didn't seek the Lord. But the text doesn't say whether he did or he didn't. I would be surprised if he didn't. Joshua doesn't strike me as someone who doesn't do those things, but it's possible. What is more likely, though, is that Joshua did seek God, but God wasn't answering because they'd come under his ban. And so Joshua, oblivious to that, He may have figured, well, God silenced his permission to follow the spies' recommendations, which is a very dangerous assumption. God being quiet is never permission. Do you know that? God being quiet is never permission. I have a rule. If God doesn't tell me to move, we don't go. Now, it does keep me lagging behind at times, and God has to kind of get out the friendly two-by-four. But if I don't have peace about it or whatever, I'm not moving forward because I don't move until I'm giving marching orders. And so it's interesting, sometimes people will come and they'll say, well, if you don't choose now, make this decision now, you're going to miss out on this deal. Or if you don't do this now, and you know what I've said every single time I've said, then I'm just, that's, you know what, added evidence that this is not the Lord, because he never pressures like that. God never pressures us like that. He never condemns us or makes us fearful that we're going to miss out on something because we're not acting quick enough. We're We're not doing something. I'm not going to be blessed by God because, you know, I'm not moving quickly enough. The Bible says God knows our frame that we're simply dust. He's gracious with us and he's patient with us as we're trying to hear his voice. God isn't quiet and doesn't leave us to our own ideas. He leads his sheep, the Bible says. He leads us out and he brings us back in. So we don't need to look at God being quiet as permission. In addition, God's favor was removed from the nation. So when you think about that, the leaders of Israel weren't exactly military geniuses. You know, they weren't like the elite planning military strategists of Egypt. They didn't have experience. I mean, in 40 years of traveling, they had some battle experience. But I mean, what, what did the battle you know, strategy consist of? Hey, make sure you hold Moses' arms up so he can keep praying. That's not exactly military protocol. These are not military tactical experts, okay? The only reason they've been able to defeat everyone leading up to this point was because of God's power over their enemies. And if that's now absent, is it a wonder they make a a blunder here militarily in their planning? When facing a decision that will affect the lives of those around you, whether it's a big one or a small one, your biggest asset is to just keep walking with the Lord in obedience to him with what you do know. Look at James chapter three with me. This kind of fascinated me when I was looking over it because I I have struggled with this over the years at times when trying to hear from God and you come to this verse, these set of verses because it's kind of iconic about God's wisdom and how we get it. James 3, 13 through 18 is what we'll read. It says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? He's starting to get things figured out. Like who's hearing from the Lord and moving in the right direction, right? I mean, doesn't that something you'd like to be? I'd like to have that said about me. If someone asks that question, they say, oh, Pastor Will, he kind of hears from the Lord pretty well, kind of knows the right direction to go. Well, he explains who, who is that person. Let him show out of a good conversation or good conduct his works with meekness of wisdom. It doesn't talk about hearing from God. It talks about walking with God. It doesn't talk about hearing something from the Lord, but rather living out what God has already spoken and doing so with humility. In contrast, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, then don't boast, don't lie against the truth. Because if you think you're hearing from God and that's your character and your conduct right now, well, guess what? That wisdom doesn't descend from above, but it's earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. It's not from God. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. In other words, you're not really hearing from the Lord. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's not necessarily about how it comes from God. That's how it comes from you to someone else when you're trying to explain it. It's about character. It's about conduct. I know I struggle with this at times, but I I kind of get all concerned with the unknowns. God, what do you want us to do? What do you want me to do in this situation? Frequently, the Lord will remind me and say, well, you've got enough on your plate today with loving your wife, loving your kids, loving you know, your neighbor, being faithful to me, being obedient to me. Let me take care of that thing you're worried about that you don't know what to do. And I found more often than not, as I just keep trucking along, keep following the Lord, all of a sudden the sky parts and then God drops an answer. And it's more often than not totally opposite of anything I could have come up with. Hearing from God has more to do with doing what God has already clearly said than it does with delving into the unknown. I love that verse from Trust and Obey. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. The unknowns, he's with us. He's guiding us. He'll help us not to make missteps as we're just walking with him in the known things. This event here, of course, totally blindsides Joshua. I mean, he is just flabbergasted when the defeat comes back. There's dead soldiers. I mean, he, he's blown away and expresses it to the Lord. Because we get down here to verse 6, it says, Joshua tore his clothes and fell upon his face before the ark of the Lord. I mean, they were kind of on the move there in a sense because the ark's out and about. The tabernacle's probably not set up currently. And so wherever the ark's covered and being carried, he falls down before it and doesn't whisper a word till the evening. He's just there and he's throwing dust on top of his head. He and all the leadership of Israel. All of these actions that we see in verse 6, tearing of the clothes, throwing dust on their head. I remember there was a movie we saw that was based on the story of Esther. And it was such a good job because after the proclamation comes out from the king that you can kill the Jews, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, is out in front of the palace and he's sitting in the ground throwing dust on his head. And they actually show it that he's doing this. You know, you know, he's rocking back and forth, very similar to how you might see maybe an Orthodox Jew today, praying and crying out to God, and he just he'll throw dust on his head. I mean, it's pretty visual, but I mean, this is what these guys are doing all the way until the evening. That's how just shocked and, and devastated they are about what's happened here. They're in mourning in a sense. And, and not so much for the loss of lives, certainly that affected Joshua and the elders, but really for the loss of God's help, because that's the only reason Israel can lose, right? And so they're, they're doing this before the ark of the Lord, because going, God, what happened that, that we have lost your help? And so finally, at evening, Joshua opens his mouth and he says, alas, O Lord God, wherefore or why have you at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us unto the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Why did you bring us over here just to destroy us? And then he says, would to God, we had been content and just stayed on the other side of Jordan, enjoyed what you'd given to us there. Now, Joshua, first off, he's clearly confused here. He starts off with a question. If we aren't in your favor, then why did you bring us here to kill us? Why not do it before here? Why get our hopes up first? It seems cruel. The question that he asks implies that God's disfavor is for some past misdeed, 
Not for something that just happened, but for something that happened long in their past. So his question is based on wrong information, which leads him to a wrong conclusion. He says, would that we were content to stay on the other side of Jordan. See, Joshua believes that their problem isn't that someone stole something. He doesn't think that happened. He thinks that God's upset because they assumed God would bless them with the land. And that that was overreaching on God's grace instead of being thankful for what God had already done and being content with that. Have you ever thought that you were in a mess you're in because you overestimated how good God is? I felt that way before. You step out in faith, you think, God, oh God, I think you want to bless me or you want to do this in my life. You step out in faith and you're in a mess and you're like, oh Lord, I think I presumed upon your grace or what a fool I am to think that you would want to bless me or do something good in my life. Why would I ever dare to think God would want to bless me more than he already has? If you're ever thinking that, you have misread the situation just like Joshua did here. Because God is good all the time. Secret sin can hinder any forward movement in our spiritual life. We never have to be afraid to bring our sin into the light and confess it before God. He longs to be merciful to us if we would just repent, turn from our sin, and turn to Him. He will never turn us away when we come to Him humbly and transparently. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.